You're listening to Building the Village, a show that focuses on how different villagers are making an impact in the villages where they serve. Each episode features insights and practical strategies that you can use to motivate teams, mentor individuals, and maximize time and talent. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, founder and speaker at B. Jones Speaks, LLC. Thanks for tuning in. Right, welcome everybody to another episode of Building the Village. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, and I'm excited because I got my cousin with me today on the show in the form of and the person of none other than Reverend Dr. Walter R. Strickland the second man. How you doing, Bobby? I'm, I'm I slipped well, in the Bobby man. on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. I'm also Bob Bob. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, man, it's, it's, it's going to be with you. Oh, man. Listen, I'm excited about this. You know, when I started doing this podcast, I was just going down the list of folks that, you know, I, I got to have on the show. And immediately I was like, oh, yeah, I got to get my cousin on here, man, just because through the years, y'all just need to know this is going to be how we are. So it's not going to be all fancy and formal. We, we're going to talk. Like like family talks, okay? So you're going to get the inside uh, <laughs> scoop as to who we are and what we do. But before we get into it, man, listen, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself, man, and your journey to getting to where you are today? Yeah, so um, my journey is a little bit eclectic as my vocational uh, hats are, are eclectic. So I uh, went to college wanting to be uh, in business. And then uh, over time, the Lord just changed my heart. You know, I'm a I'm a pastor at heart. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why I say the Lord sort of changed my heart, my direction, refined that. So I ended up doing a a bachelor's degree in biblical theological studies and also one in psychology. Uh, I wanted to do counseling. Uh, And so ended up graduating, going to seminary. Uh, Long story short, I almost went to Istanbul, Turkey for a couple of years uh, to be a missionary there. But um, I ended up staying back here in the States and um, Ended up pastoring at a church just north of Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I went to seminary mm-hmm. at Southeastern Seminary. And then was there for a couple of years, did a THM, MDiv, ended up doing a PhD at University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And then, yeah, that was a, a journey in and of itself. But one thing that was great in my upbringing is that from my, my youngest years in the south side of Chicago to my school years, first grade through high school in Southern California, then going to the cornfields of Ohio for college and then to the South for seminary and then the PhD in the UK, uh, I've experienced a whole lot of cultures. <laughs> Man. And yeah, and, and I've, I've learned and grown in each of them in different ways. And then I've seen ways that each of them can be refined. And so uh, I'm kind of a mutt, culturally speaking, but I think I've been better for it uh, in many ways. And so, uh, and even that has informed the way I ended up doing uh, my PhD as well, uh, talking about the intersection of theological method, culture, mm-hmm. and how culture informs at times our, our theological formulation and how much is appropriate of that, doing that in the work of uh, J.D. Otis Roberts, Jacqueline Grant, and James Cone. And so, yeah, it's been a, a great journey. And so now I, I'm a professor, administrator at Southeastern Seminary, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, I run an LLC called the Strickland Institute. We do consulting. We have a tech platform. So we're essentially an ed tech company, but I'm also a pastor as well. I'm a, a lay elder at my church, a teaching pastor. So I preach several times a year there. So uh, it's, it's been a, a great joy to serve in all those, in all those roles and wear uh, multiple hats that might sound like they are disconnected in some way, but at the same time, 
I don't feel like I'm schizophrenic at all in the sense that I'm sort of uh, losing myself, but it feels like it's all connected together because I serve a God who is uh, Lord of all. So uh, it informs all I do. I love it, man. And I love it. And for the folks that have been listening to the show and know, you know, how I am and how I'm wired, like, y'all, this, this, this is my cousin. So you can hear it. Y- y'all can hear it right here and now where where we get this from. OK, it's in the DNA. So listen, let's dive in, man, because I'm, I'm just sitting over here smiling from ear to ear because I finally get to sit down and pick your brain on a public <laughs> scale. You know, we, we talk behind closed doors all the time, but I'm like, nah, people need to know what my family, what my cousin is capable of. So listen, let's <laughs> talk, man. So the first question I have for you uh, is around uh, just common myths associated with what you do. You wear a lot of hats. But that one that you talked about that stands out the most for you definitely is uh, you're a pastor at heart. And I know that you're an author, you're a husband, you're a father, all these different things. But that pastor hat has got to be the one that comes with so many just assumptions and beliefs that people, whether they are people of faith or not, uh, have. What are some of the common myths that you run into uh, whenever you're interacting with people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think people assume that pastors only work on Sunday morning when they're preaching. (laughs) Uh, And that's that's actually it is an important time, but it's not the most important. I mean, it's it's an important time. but There's other important things we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I end up sitting with a lot of people at their homes uh, as they're working through stuff. I end up talking to folks after they've been ill or during a time when they're sick, grieving, trying to figure out what this brokenness is that's affecting them in their lives. Mm -hmm. So a lot of counseling. I do think that there is a significant part of the intellectual life that drives uh, what it means to be a, a pastor shepherd, because there's a lot of stuff coming at us these days uh, from all sorts of angles. And so if you uh, are going to call yourself a pastor, I think you have to have a, a mind to be able to engage this stuff in a real sense. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that there's a, a, a significant role that faith does play, but our faith is reasonable at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, our faith does, uh, you know, order things. The reason why I'm a Christian is because I think of all the the faiths that I've looked at, the Christian faith makes the most sense of the chaos we see in this world the best. And so um, we are inside of the story of the Bible, and so we're kind of enacting it in some ways right now as uh, as, as those who are who are living today. So uh, really, it's I, I guess it's I guess the the, the one misconception is that we only work on on Sundays or just preparing mm-hmm. sermons, which is true because I was preparing a sermon on Daniel 3 today mm-hmm. that I'll preach on Sunday. But uh, it, it is a lot more to the pastoral role than just that. Man, I appreciate you sharing that. You talked about the role specifically of the Christian faith in your own life. What do you think the role of the Christian faith is when it comes to issues of especially justice? Uh, because I think that's another area personally with both of us. I mean, I'm not a pet. Well, Technically, I am now. Uh, <laughs> Pastor, I forgot to tell you about that in the pre-show. Uh, we'll talk about that after. Uh, but one of the things that I think uh, comes up whenever we're talking about the issues of faith uh, related to the assumptions that people make is that the Christian faith does not address uh, social justice or specifically in the African-American context. And you got books uh, on that. Yes, I'm plugging my cousin. OK, uh, get get some of these books. We'll put them in the show notes. But um, what do you think the role of the Christian faith is in relation to uh, issues of social justice or justice in general? Yeah. So, I mean, I actually believe that justice is rooted in the character of God. And so that that actually allows us to understand what justice is. 
the, the way that this world is ordered by God, one that brings the shalom that God uh, inscribed into the foundations of creation. So if you read in Proverbs chapter three, I think it's verses 18 to 20, mm-hmm. it said that God wove his wisdom into the fabric of creation. We look back at the creation story uh, in Genesis chapters one and two, we see that God declared, you know, created everything and declared it was good. So, so the creation itself sort of exudes this peace, this shalom that God interwoven into it. But then we come upon Genesis chapter three, where we see that that peace was frustrated by Adam and Eve rebelling against God's plan by eating of the fruit of the tree. That's how they indicated that they wanted to go about it their own way. Uh, and then since then, we've just seen this brokenness. And so essentially what justice is, in my view, is getting back to the way that God actually wanted and created creation to be. And mm-hmm. so uh, it includes the love of God. It includes the, the the justice and the righteousness of God. It includes all these things. And so uh, and we, if we look back to even the life of Christ, oftentimes people focus on the beginning of his life, the, uh, you know, the fact that he was both God and man, which is, uh, you know, part and parcel to being Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that has to be in order for him to, in my view, be savior. He has to be uh, both God and man. You know, um, but then also sometimes we jump to the conclusion of Jesus' life, which is his death and resurrection, where I believe that he saves people from the sins that plague us if we allow him to be that for us. But in the middle of Jesus' life, as the God-man, he is the one who was living a life of righteousness, loving people, setting things that were wrong right again as a sign of the kingdom that's to come. And so what's going to happen is that God created, and then that creation was disordered. Christ came and literally was trying to reorder once again the creation, and then it's a sign of the kingdom that's going to come. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, God was like, look, I created this. It's been messed up. We're living in that mess right now in 2021, and we really felt that in 2020, 2021, Mm -hmm. although we felt it for a number of years, but it's been acute in some uh, very uh, crazy ways, but it's not going to be like this always. Mm-hmm. And so, the, and so this 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 includes everything from viruses, from the way one person treats another, one group treats another group. Mm-hmm. All these things are anti the way that God established His world to be. Mm. And so, what I'm saying is that all brokenness and brokenness that's both in our bodies, but also in society are going to be fixed. And so all I have to say is that we we often assume, uh, we're prone to, to assume that there is uh, these two things, like Jesus died to save our souls, which is true, because then we are, uh, those who are in Christ, those who have accepted that sacrifice on the cross are going to be mm-hmm. able to go be with him in eternity forever. Yeah. But he also saved us. And so now we're able to live out that righteousness in public life. And so it's justice and righteousness are the same Greek word, the chaos. And so how dare we actually put it up? So people who speak Spanish, they only have one word for to translate the chaos, and it assumes that it's both vertical and horizontal. Mm. You know, fixing our relationship with God, but also fixing our relationship with one another. And I think, uh, I wish that we wouldn't, in English, have two different words because it's often been assumed that the you know uh, righteousness, this word that we have, is, which is usually associated with turning things to right with our relationship with God, is sort of detached from 
turning things right with one another down here uh, on, on the social plane. So I guess this is a big rambling answer, cause, but the reality is, is that what does the Christian faith have to do with justice? Everything, because God is the one within whom justice is actually found. And when we get back to the way God designed the world to work in the kingdom, mm-hmm. that's when there's going to be no more tears and no more crying and no more of this pain that we're experiencing right now, both in our bodies and other kinds of brokenness, but also uh, socially one to one person to another person or one group to another group. Man, man. So we y'all, if, in case y'all didn't pick up on that, you just got a lesson in theology injustice and social justice and all listen my boy just broke that down for y'all i hope y'all caught that you can hit rewind hit replay share that with your friends and your family because you just got a good a lesson that people pay lots of money uh to hear and get on a regular basis so as you were talking one of the things i thought about was the fact that you know you have a book is it uh charles octavius uh booth correct and uh plain theology for plain people talk about that and how and how all of that intersects because as you were listening that just that just remind I was listening to you talking I'm like plain theology for plain people why do we need that in relation to what you were just saying yeah so brokenness right we know that there's a lot of ways that we experience uh, what the Bible calls sin uh, you know what we would call injustice you know mm-hmm. in, in many ways the life of Charles Octavius Booth actually began in the context of injustice because he was born a slave in 1845. And so what we understand is that there were some teachers who were boarding on the plantation where he was owned. So they were sort of passing through. They stayed for a while. They taught him how to read uh, on the etchings of a tin plate in the shadows of this plantation, risking their own freedom to do so. Mm -hmm. So he learned how to read uh, that way. But then, you know, back then, when you learn how to read, you, you really begin to sort of flex your reading muscles on the scriptures. And so, obviously, um, 1865 came around. He was 20 years old. He was emancipated. Then, um, but even before that, he went to go work for uh, as an errand boy, uh, as a clerk in a law office. And you know, as you all know, or many of you guys might know, um, the study of law is based upon scriptures, especially the logic in the Pauline epistles, which is the Apostle Paul wrote, specifically the Book of Romans. So Charles Octavius Booth was in his law office doing his work, reading the Book of Romans, and he concluded that. You know, God is the God of the universe in the Bible. And then he said, and it's through this Jesus that we are rescued from the plight that we're currently in. And so he actually came to a place where he saw that Jesus is Lord, and that was his claim. And then he uh, was baptized, joined mm-hmm. the church. And then um, he said, you know what? Because the God that I read in the Bible is the God of justice and righteousness, then he began to work for the Freedmen's Bureau, educating you know, freed slaves because he knows the atrocities of slavery. And then he began to work towards justice, uh, you know, with people like Booker T. Washington. But Mm -hmm. he also did several other things. One is is including being a pastor. He established two churches. The second one is the home of the Montgomery bus boycott, Mm -hmm. uh, which Martin Luther King Jr. was the 20th pastor. So Dexter Avenue Baptist Church was started by Charles Octavius Booth. Man. And so um, soon after, yeah, right. Soon after this, he uh, he also was uh, a learned man uh, because he could read and everything. And he and he began to train other Christians and pastors to know the scripture and be able to impact the world for Jesus. 
Uh, and so he um, started doing this circuit where he would just go around Alabama training pastors, leaders. And he wrote this handbook for theology where he was able to leave this with them after the training was over. And it was called this plain theology for plain people. And so this is a, a systematic theology, as we say, working sort of um, systematically through the, the major doctrines or questions of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is God? Who is humanity? You know, all these, what is the church? All these big questions that we have, what is the Bible? And he basically walked through those to help people understand uh, what God is doing in this world. And so uh, now we have Plain Theology for Plain People published in 1890 because, I mean, it was tough to sell books on the Christian faith written by a black man at that time. Mm-hmm. So there was a very small publishing run of these books. So the, the, the publishing life originally was very short. I think Charles Octavius Booth should have been one of the perennial American Christian figures, but like many African-American contributions to the Christian faith, they were lost. Uh, and so uh, when I stumbled upon it in a Word document on a thumb drive that I got from a friend, I said, the world has to know about Charles Octavius Booth. If we know about John Jonathan Edwards, if we know about D.L. Moody, if we know about these people like this, D.D. Warfield, I mean, I'm just thinking pastors and theologians that have these, you know, resounding sort of impacts on the Christian faith in America. If we know those names, we have to know Charles Octavius Booth. And something that I've been asked is like, hey, you know, it's crazy. I love people have, who have read the book. I love the book, but it's a crazy that he was the only one like this. And I said, no, this is the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other people mm-hmm. that we could introduce into this conversation. However, because we have been so centered on voices that are Anglo in Christianity in America, mm-hmm. we have to begin to see that the, the publishers weren't quick to publish people like Charles Octavius Booth. Yeah. You know, this was a, a more oral culture. So a lot of the things that were that were taught were taught not written form, but just like we're talking right now. Mm-hmm. So all I have to say is that I think that uh, one, Booth is it's a fascinating find, but he's not unique. And so I'm trying to do some more work to, to bring back more people to our attention like Booth so that, um, you know, so I, I can go more down that path a little bit later. But, uh, but the reality is in that book, Plant the Algebra Plain People, he gives a very helpful articulation, description of how God is working in this world and then through his people to curtail some of the very things that resulted in the plight of his birth, which is slavery and other atrocities to follow. I remember when you were working on this book, uh, I remember we, we were talking and we were talking about the importance of the written tradition. And for the, for those of us that don't know, Walter and I, our grandmothers are sisters. And so we regularly would see each other every, every two years, religiously at family reunions. And oh, yeah. we'd catch up on the different things that we were into. And uh, a couple of years ago, when I was living in South Carolina, uh, Walter and I were talking. And one of the things that I was asking him was, you know, what would it have been like to have been able to read our great-grandfather's sermons? You know, hmm. because they didn't write. They didn't leave these things out. I w- and I want to let the people in a little bit on that conversation. Uh, well, talk to us a little bit. Let the audience know, like, why is it important to write? Like, not just, you know, books, but our speeches, our sermons, our random musings. Like, why is the written tradition so important? Yeah, yeah. You know, just to go back to the origin of that conversation, our grandfather, our great-grandfather, or is it our great-great? 
because it, it was it was it's great great right yeah it's great because, no it was great it was great okay 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 yeah, it was yeah, great because so, so, his grandmother's father <laughs> okay okay so it was Demery. yeah okay so established a church in overton texas mm-hmm. and so for those of you who are not familiar with the country of texas i, I said that jokingly <laughs> uh, but it's the state of texas uh, it's in East Texas, and so it's in the middle of nowhere next to a town in the middle of nowhere mm. called Tyler, which is where my cousin was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and raised there. Uh, so about two hours east of Dallas. And so anyway, um, he established a church out there years ago, decades ago now. And so, but man, I, I think I really wish that we could have heard mm-hmm. uh, or read some of the stuff he wrote. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I mean, now we have the the, the, the privilege of being literate. Um, not that people back then who were who were black couldn't be literate. They were they weren't dumb. It was just the the, the law of the land, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because you know uh, African American Christianity sort of grew up uh, in its earliest years during a time where it was illegal for people to read, the tradition uh, was established as one that was oral. And so, and just recently, you know, in the last you know I would say seventy five years, we've seen a significant changeover. Uh, uh, on that, you know, uh, really beginning a hundred years ago, um, you know, we really begin to see a, a big change. So, um, but yeah, you know, Brandon, I, I think that it is good for us to have sermons written down so we can see what the tradition was. But I do think that people, uh, especially today, have misconstrued the nature of African American Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, people people want to come back. You know, people I hear claims that you know Christianity is a white man's religion. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality was there was a bunch of African-American Christians, black Christians, who've been doing the thing. I mean, there was Christians who came over on the transatlantic slave trade, you know, on, on the bottom of boats. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Christianity, even in Africa, pre-existed transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have biblical references. You know, the gentleman who was the, I mean, the Ethiopian unit, mm-hmm. you know, that's like Ethiopia, Ethiopia. Right. <laughs> you know, so folks were in the Bible. Uh, you know, who are African going back to Africa. And then we even see in the very earliest stages of the church, some of the most significant documents doctrinally in the history of the church have massive African uh, influence. Mm-hmm. So talking about the, the Council of Nicaea, talking about, you know, even so uh, Augustine, North Africa. I mean, so the list goes on of, in, you know, of, of folks. And then, and then we see that uh, and even in notes that people, so rulers have left, Spanish rulers, as they were going into Africa, they said they, they encountered people singing the hymns of the faith. Mm-hmm. And so there's this history that's been lost. And I really wish we would have more writings of people to demonstrate just how indigenous the Christian faith is to Black life, uh, not only in America, but in Africa, and in Africa pre-transatlantic slave trade. Man. And that's incredible because for me, you know, whenever I've encountered that argument about Christianity specifically uh, being the white man's religion, the thing that I often found was that I'm like, for me, at least just looking at a map, I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> just I'm like, and, and all it took was just looking at a map to go, you know, my friend, artist Buford, uh, who's a pastor out there in uh uh, South Carolina, uh, one of the things that he said was, he said, you know, Jesus went and their family hid in Egypt. And he always would say, you can't hide out where you stick out. So th- he was like, that alone kind of threw off his whole, 
that like the, the white origins of these things. And I think a lot of the times because like some so many things in our lives, because it got weaponized, suddenly we throw the whole thing out because the faith got weaponized against black and brown people. And so as a result, a lot of people, especially going back to 2020, and we'll shift gears here in a second, uh, going into 2020, as people are doing the work of unpacking or deconstructing uh, what they perceive to be their faith, that's the first thing to go. It's like, oh, well, this was for white people anyway, so this ain't for me no more. What do you do as a pastor or, or even as a believer? What do you do uh, when you encounter folks doing this work of um, unpacking what they believe to or what they're encountering as their faith or issues of faith? How do you counsel or coach or talk people mm. through that going through that deconstruction process? Yeah, first, you know, um, because we're holistic beings and nothing that we do is surely intellectual uh, or surely emotive. But I, I do think that um, we treat this as often as a, an intellectually exclusive issue. But the reason why people do this is because of trauma. There's traumatic things that drive people to want to, you know, deconstruct, uh, decolonize. Some people say their faith. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I, I try to meet them where they are at the level of their uh, emotions and feelings and those sorts of things and say, hey, I, I feel you. I'm, I'm with you. I understand why you think this. And I, and I can feel that pain, too. However, I think there's some more things you ought, ought to consider. And then I'll go back to scripture itself, uh, you know, and then we'll talk about the fact that, you know, about who Jesus was, you know, about that he was a Middle Eastern man, about where the faith traffics to, about where, and just a lot of the stuff I just told you about, right? And then, and then I say, well, well, then what happened? Well, people tried to utilize the Christian faith as a means of uh, subordinating people, you know, another group. And then basically the, the iconography, like the things that the icons of the church, stuff we see, the renderings of Jesus begin to, you know, bespeak that reality. You know, the books that were published, the theories, even in the sciences, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, scientific sort of um, ways of, um, of racialization that became sort of name of the game, even in the establishment of America. But so, and all, all I have to say, uh, like, I, I really think that as you said, Brandon, we can't fill the baby out with the bathwater. Just right. because it was used poorly doesn't mean that we uh, don't ever use it. So I'm, I'm doing some work in my house right now. And so I, I was telling my son about a hammer. I was like, okay, this is a great tool. This is a great thing, but it can be used for good or for evil. Mm -hmm. And just because somebody, you know, uh, misuses something doesn't mean we never utilize it again. Or don't, don't we don't find its original intent by the maker. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... And, and that's kind of like the Christian faith. Just because it's been misused um, doesn't mean that it's broken for specific people. And so um, all that to say, I'm not, and for me, I always give the warning that I'm not trying to uh, make the Christian faith the property of Blackness or Black people. Mm -hmm. You know, as, a, as the polar opposite extreme, I'm trying to see to it that it becomes what Christ intended it, you know, to be, you know, a, a, a faith for people of every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I think that that faith can be embodied robustly, no matter what cultural context you find yourself in. And I often say that the the Christian faith is not captive to any culture, but only makes itself manifest in cultures. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I think that, you know, we can be more authentically whatever we are as somebody who understands the world from, a, you know, from, a, from the perspective of the Christian faith, but in the, like, with the sort of um, the art forms that we have in our culture, with the way in which we sing our song, with the way that we do family, with the way that we do. So like all those things that are culturally informed, we do them better and even more joyously as those who are rightly understanding the redemptive reality of the Christian faith. And so it actually makes every culture better. Uh, not, not that we have to sort of get out of ours and jump into somebody else's. And so uh, that, that's, those are some some scattered thoughts. So if you have any more questions, feel free to uh, press in. Oh no, no, you 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 went right in, and I think you unpacked that um, in in a very strategic way. And what I liked about what you were sharing was that it's inherent in the experience. I love how you unpack culture and how Christ is in culture and all these different things. Because again, what I've encountered, especially in 2020, um, was just people trying to separate it and wondering. People were. I, I saw two things. I saw people looking for the church's response. And then when the church was responding, people were trying to separate from that. How can communities of faith look at 2020, learn from it, and make this, help create this peaceable kingdom or whatever, uh, the uh, beloved community, as Dr. King would say. How can we look at the, the examples of what we saw in 2020 and what we're experiencing in 2021 what can we do as communities of faith to achieve that beloved community? Wow, that, that's that's a loaded question because I mean we we had the, the pandemic itself, mm-hmm. uh, and by that like the biological sort of reality of it. Then we had the sort of political unrest that sort of came with how we dealt with the pandemic, <laughs> and then we had a, a presidential cycle going on. And so we had the idea, I mean, some people thinking that the, the government is going to heal everything. Is our hope in government exclusively, you know, or is it in something else? And so mm-hmm. that that whole thing was going on, which is why the I think the political tensions and even how we were dealing with the pandemic were even more stark. Then we had racial tensions, you know, we had, you know, the the catalytic sort of realities, you know, of lives and lives lost of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, the racial tensions that came on with that. So. So 2020 was a, was a beast, you know? And then, and, I mean, I remember Hobie died. I was like, no, 2020 is off to a bad start. Right. And it was, but like, <laughs> it just it, kept going. you know, it was like, Hey, watch this. I'm not even through. So how, how do we begin to even talk about all that stuff? Well, one, we have to admit that this world is not the way we, none of us want it to be. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all begin at that place. Something is not right with this. Well, the question is, what, like, what's not right? Well, we have to acknowledge that. I mean, for me, I think it's this, this sin that we've been talking about that's affected everything, this brokenness that, that, is, that makes it like, uh, not the way we want it to be. But then also you know, trying to figure out what's going to fix this. Mm-hmm. How do we move forward with this? And I think the answer, again, as I was sort of alluding to a moment ago, some people see it, see it as politics. Like you know, Politicians are going to fix this. I mean, y'all, look, <laughs> I mean, politics has been lying for a long time. I mean, you know what I'm saying? like they, they've been promising all kinds of stuff. I, I mean, I do think government is given to us by God. I think it's a, you know, in, in many ways, there's some good uh, regulatory things that are that, that government does for us that, sure. that help organize our existence. I mean, 
Granted, there are tyrannical governments, and I read and lament those. That's a misuse of governing. In fact, that's not governing. That's abuse. It's mm-hmm. it's injustice. It's the thing that like you know that we lament in the book of Lamentations, and also we see throughout the the prophets, God Himself is lamenting as well. I mean, these are the things that are you know that the faith uh, you know calls us to speak out against. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think government is the solution. I think we should per- to participate in the democratic process for sure, um, but doing so with a an understanding that uh, one day the government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and mm-hmm. that is when the government, like that ordering of the world, is going to be the one that will actually carry us from a time of feeling all these tensions to a time where we actually have peace. Mm-hmm. And so, understanding that, we ought to be vying for the this sort of like bipartisan uh you know uh you know kingdom of god you know mm-hmm. uh, i say bipartisan because i mean it transcends you know our our um you know our our two-party system it transcends even this nation it transcends uh any sort of you know just whatever you are it, 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 it's much bigger than this. so our hope has to be in something literally out of this world that inbreaks into the world and is not going to leave it this way. So based upon what we think the solution is, that actually is uh, helps us to, to be motivated appropriately to engage this activity. So that even the methods that we use to engage this are driven by what we think the solution is. And so mm-hmm. uh, if I'm following the, the method of Jesus, not that I'm Jesus, but, you know, just following the, the example of the one that I think, the, the, you know, who has come and has been our example. So uh, he took on flesh and became uh, incarnate. He dwelt mm-hmm. among us, is what John 1.14 says. And so what we have to do is not just be on social media, trying to be a hero on there, but getting down with the people, being mm-hmm. there with the people. Uh, and actually doing the work, taking up the circumstances, the location of the people that we are trying to do the work with, and actually doing real work there, boots on the ground. And so that so that that then even informs, so in, even the love of Christ impacts how I go about doing things as well, because I, I think the the emotive reality of all of, all of this, I mean, we often want to go and we, we, we often try to do things out of a spirit of yes, brokenness, but then mm-hmm. you know there's this outrage for sure. I, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be outraged by the by some of the brokenness we see in the world, especially you know one person to another type brokenness, one group on another type group type brokenness. Mm-hmm. But even still, the like perfect love casts out fear. This yes, love sir. that Christ had is the one that is, is a conquering reality. So I'm I'm trying to I'm weaving all this stuff together. I'm trying to. Okay. You know, so we have to understand what's the problem, how is it fixed? Mm-hmm. Then when that comes, we figure out a methodology. And then even when we're exercising that methodology of doing the work boots on the ground, taking up that circumstances and location, we have to do it with the demeanor that matches. And for me, the one whom hope comes through, which is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so uh, oftentimes that's not that's that's what I'm not seeing. Sure. When we're interacting with people who have different ways of handling the pandemic. People who, you know, think we shouldn't be talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, color, color anymore. We should just dust it under the rug and be colorblind. So when oftentimes when people are talking to folks who disagree with them, they're not carrying themselves in a way that bespeaks the peace. 
that they're trying to bring about. Mm. And that right there, I think, is one of the major contributing factors of why we can't arrive anywhere together because we're not even trying to embody the reality we're trying to work towards. Wow. Wow. Man, that, that right there. That that last part, like we're not even embodying the peace. It's like you call like you you're not even being peaceful in your tone and demeanor. Like you asking you you wanting people to come to a peaceful resolution, but you yelling at them. You kept you talking in all t- all caps on Twitter and wondering why we can't achieve peace in groups. Man, I appreciate that. Before I let you get out of here, man, I gotta ask you to talk to us about the work you're doing with the Strickland Institute that you did <laughs> earlier. You got man, you got to tell the folks about the Strickland Institute. What, what, yeah, what is man. the Yeah, so, you know, I think it's obvious. We, and, and, you know, we, we just look around in the workplace. We look around in organizations. We struggle to, to achieve our stated visions and mission statements uh, cross-culturally, you know, with, um, and so a lot of organizations, they are established with uh, fairly monocultural, um, be it, we have two sides of the company. One side deals with faith-based realities and the other side deals with uh, non-faith-based, you know, governments and corporations. Uh, and the other side is called uh, cultural engagement. And so, um, so the reality is, so organizations and churches and what have you, uh, ministries, corporations, they don't, they really haven't taken a lot of time to figure out how is it that they serve um, and then create products for people of, the, of various backgrounds, uh, how their uh, internal dynamics, their workplace environment can be one where all kinds of people can flourish, mm-hmm. um, how, we, how we can basically get along together as we do in the work, because there is statistical evidence, and so empirical data that actually reveals that we produce better products, that we actually offer better service. We uh, end up, you know, having a more introspective dynamic in the office about the work that we're doing if we are actually culturally competent as we're doing the work. So it's not, it's not, uh, does it, it, does it seem like lateral motion perhaps, but if we think about the fact that, you know, if we are culturally competent, then we're actually able to do what we're sending out to do more effectively, but also, um, you know, we're, we're going to have employees longer. So they're going to be better at what they do because mm-hmm. they're not, running away because they've been hurt by the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so the, so the Strickland Institute and cultural engagement, we're trying to figure out how to, how to help folks. And so we have, we're actually getting ready to launch a, uh, an ed tech platform. That's going to be uh, a help to that, you know, to, to folks doing that work that'll be launching uh, November 5th. We've had some delays because our, we, we, we contracted a company and they're having uh, some COVID related delays because our team basically was hanging out together and they all got COVID. So, <laughs> So, uh, because they're doing the work, but, um, so, so there's that, we got seminars, we got, um, self-assessment, uh, leadership assessment tools. We have uh, self audits for different organizations, mm-hmm. of different kinds. We got uh, a comprehensive climate survey that, that is, uh, being, uh, verified at the moment. And so we, we got a lot of work that we're doing, um, to help organizations of various kinds do their work, uh, with the cross-cultural piece in mind. 
man, that sounds incredible. So folks, if you get a chance and if you have a company, a team, an organization, uh, a ministry, uh, perhaps that could utilize the services of the Strickland Institute, uh, be sure to go to strictlandinstitute.com. We'll have the website in the liner notes. Uh, Cousin, how can folks who want to get in contact with you, uh, how can they go about doing that? What's your preferred way for folks to reach you? Yeah, so um, at the Strickland Institute uh, and its subsidiary that works with K-12 Christian schools, Unify Ed, spelled Unify with a big E for education. Uh, there, there's ways to get a hold of me there. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, uh, on, on Facebook, Walter R. Strickland II, not to be confused with my dad, who is Walter Robert Strickland Senior, or my grandfather, who's now on there a little bit, uh, also a Walter Strickland. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, we're just uncreated with names. I got a son named Walter Strickland too. We just, we just, yeah, we, you know, I got Brandon the second. So we, there, we, you we, go, there you go. I mean, <laughs> it's classic. Dude. It's not boring. It's classic, I guess. Right. Um, so that's on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, at W underscore, underscore Strickland. I, I do have my DMs uh, uh, open as well. So yeah, there's various ways to get a hold of me. So uh, also WalterStrickland.com is it, a way to do that as well. So uh, yeah. Awesome, man. Well, listen, I've enjoyed having you, man. I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on all your success and also on getting tenured um, first in the family. And I'm saying that on air, first in the family. You know, I was a professor right around the same time. You first wanted to get tenured, man. I'm like, all right. I don't know if I'm going down that pathway, so you're probably going to be the only one. Oh, no. We'll see all these little cousins we got. You know, this generation after us running around, you never know. You know what? You're right, but you hey, but you get to be the pace setter on that one. <laughs> I just love you, man. I love what you all are doing out there in North Carolina, man. Keep up the good work for the rest of you. Please continue uh, liking and commenting and subscribing to Building the Village. Uh, if you want to learn more information about the podcast, you can find it on bjonespeaks.com. We're also located on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, and Simplecast as well. So please, please, please continue to support the show and like it show so with that take care of yourselves and as jerry springer said each other (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of building the village to catch the next episode be sure to follow the show on apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher the show was hosted and produced by me dr brandon w jones and edited by lydia fortuna 